Well, in preparation for today, I, I took the liberty of rereading excerpt, excerpts of Joe's marvelous memoirs from his years at the Met, and also I, I made a few phone calls to some friends of mine who knew him or knew of his work or were around Lincoln Center in one way or another. And I, I, I came away with, a, with a, a particularly strong impression, one which I had not had in my, in my years in the world of opera, and, and that was that, that Joe ran the Met in many ways on incredibly strong relationships with a very large number of very interesting and sometimes very challenging people. And I thought today, rather than go over some of the things that we heard on Thursday night, I thought we'd talk about some of, the, some of these relationships. Uh, one of the points that Joe made on Thursday night was the huge importance in the American system for an opera company's relationship with its audience, for ticket sales, for fundraising, for general goodwill and, and relationships. Uh, but we didn't talk much about governance, boards, and the artistic part of the company. And I thought we'd start with one man that seems to have loomed large in your career, who was your, your boss, your colleague, um, and who really ran the Met with you in many years, and that's Bruce Crawford. Bruce was, was a board member, president of the Met, became the general manager, and became president again when Joe became general manager. So t tell us about Bruce Crawford and your, and your working partnership with him. Uh, yes, I knew him. Was, was that the question? <laughs> Actually, Bruce, um, long history with opera. When he, uh, I think he was in the army and he discovered he loved opera. He'd wait outside of the old Met and when people could no longer take the, what was being performed, they'd leave after the first act or second act and Bruce waited outside for the ticket. So Bruce saw the third act and the last act of almost every opera that the Met had in its repertoire. And in fact, in his later days, I would be with the box with him and he would leave early. Uh, he said, I've seen that already. Uh, Bruce became involved with the Met on the board and to become a board member, you donate, although it's never spoken how much you donate to the Met to become a managing director. The figure in those days uh, was around $200,000. I don't know what that's in pounds. Uh, today, it's substantially more, but it's, ne it's not written anywhere. Uh, it's just what you do if you want to become a board member. And if you want to become a very important board member, you can always give a million or two million, or if you want to become even higher up in the organization, 10 million, 15, and it's been known to go as high as 25 and 30 million recently if you kept up with the papers. Uh, but Bruce started, he was in the advertising business, loved opera, started uh, on the Met Media Committee and was quite involved early on with media and television. Um, he was at the Met during the, on the board during the 1980 labor dispute, uh, didn't really understand it. Uh, board members really never get a lot of the facts from the board leadership, at least in those days and probably still in these days, uh, because it's really a, a small group of people uh, on the executive committee that make the decisions and Bruce wasn't on that. 
However, after the labor dispute in 1980, Bruce said, if I'm going to participate in this organization, uh, and I don't mind giving more money, but I'm going to have something to say. So he became a member of the executive committee, then became the president of the Met, and that's when uh, Anthony A. Bliss, who was the general manager for 10 years, uh, was retiring and they did a search. And actually the one person that was very close to getting the job was uh, Dr. August Everding. Uh, but they felt that well, he wouldn't be able to deal with the problems of the unions and fundraising. And so the search committee then asked Bruce Crawford to be the general manager. And Bruce was the general manager for about three and a half years. Um, we were on tour in Japan. Uh, I was the assistant manager in charge of operations. Uh, Jimmy, of course, was the music director, artistic director. And Bruce discovered that he was only there to greet and meet the Japanese sponsors and have dinner with him. So it wasn't very much fun for him. So at that time, he came up with a scheme and a plan to create an organization uh, in marketing, which was called Omnicom. And Omnicom today is the second largest uh, marketing holding company in the world, and Bruce is still a chairman. Uh, he was the president and CEO and then moved up to chairman, but very involved in the Met. The, he retired his position, because after general manager, he then left and the Met hired a chap by the name of Hugh Southern. Um, and it was interesting because Hugh was only in, has been spent very much time in the Opera House. Bill, I don't know if you knew you, but he, he uh, you was involved with the touring program of San Francisco. And I heard that he was in an Opera House at least six or seven months. So that was his experience. Actually, Manuela Holterhofer in the Wall Street Journal said that um, uh, I fly on British Air uh, quite a bit, so maybe I should become the head of the Royal Air Force, you know, that kind of experience. So he only lasted seven months, and lo and behold, they came around to giving me the job. Bruce was very influential in that. Um, and we then had a relationship which lasted about 12 years, working very, we were very close. And any time there were big decisions to make, such as having to fire an unnamed soprano, I always made sure that I would tell Bruce so that he wouldn't be blindsided and find it out because then board members would be up in arms, what's Volpe doing now? Uh, so I did include him and we had a, a great relationship and he was a wonderful leader. It would be interesting to hear from you how, where, where the roles split. I mean, Bruce did certain things. He managed the board. He took care of the external matters. One of the points I think is very interesting in my years in the UK is that British cultural institutions are governed quite differently from American cultural institutions, largely because of the huge role fundraising plays. But, but there must have been a division of roles here because, if, because you said to me the other night that the board really mattered and Bruce really mattered in managing that, that board. And, and how, how did you work with Bruce and the board? And, and, and how did you keep the tight reins on things that the Met always has? Well, the, uh, I never had a very strong relationship with some of the board members um, because I didn't care to. Uh, I can recall we, 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 had a, we televised 
a production and one of the board members said, oh my God, it was, I just couldn't, I couldn't even see it, you know, I mean, it was, and the sound was awful. And I asked that board member if they still had a black and white monitor or did they upgrade to color television. So that was the kind of relationship. There were, uh, there were moments uh, that there was some, a little tension, but Bruce essentially handled the board. That was his job. Uh, his job was to fill them in or not, depending on his judgment. He had the responsibility of oversight. The, the boards of directors have responsibilities of fundraising and oversight, and they hire the general director. That's what they do. Now, oversight can vary. If you're very, uh, you have a very knowledgeable president like Crawford, I would always share with him future plans um, so that I wouldn't later hear that, well, why are you doing this or why are you doing something else? Uh, I, I believe that he was a good partner. When he retired uh, and we had another president, I did not share the plans, uh, quite frankly, because the person was a businessman uh, and, however intelligent, not one that really had a sense of what program, what programming would produce, what revenue, et cetera. And, and did that make a difference with your relationship with the board at that stage, or was Bruce still around, you know, sort of acting as an intermediary? I don't think they knew quite the difference, quite frankly. Uh, the Crawford, as I say, was very tuned in to what went on in the house. He was the general manager for three years. He had a relationship with the company. He understood the finances. He understood the people. He worked with James Levine. He understand what problems that created. Uh, and so you then bring in a volunteer board member who said, well, geez, I really shouldn't have this job. Um, maybe my wife is better equipped. But she was already the president of a small organization in Santa Fe. Um, so the... Uh, but no, so he, he approached it at, from a business point of view, not really getting into the details that, uh, that Bruce Crawford would. I got the impression from rereading several pages in your, in your memoir about, about Bruce that you and he had a, a great a sympathy in terms of how to do business. Bruce was a tough businessman, knew how to deal with costs. Uh, your story about, about containerizing scenery and so forth, which, which you had no joy with with his, with his predecessor, uh, was something that you managed to achieve. Was, was, was this kind of a business partnership in part because you both agreed on, on, on a way to do things efficiently, cost-effectively? I mean, that, that, that's always been your reputation as a, as, as a tough budget man at the, at the Met. Well, Bruce Crawford taught me many things. Um, and Bruce felt any time he had a relationship, a business relationship with someone, it's important that both parties are happy with the, uh, with the relationship. So Bruce always would go the extra mile in making sure in any negotiation uh, or any contract that, that was reached with another party that they were comfortable. And I mean, it's quite, I, 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 there was an example I will give you. Bruce was buying a new apartment in Manhattan. And, um, he put a substantial amount of money down to purchase it. And the co-op board in New York, they're notorious at times. This was in the Carlisle Hotel, an apartment in the Carlisle. Um, and they never got around to approving uh, his purchase. 
So Bruce said, okay, if we don't approve it by a certain date, then I'm walking away. Now he had every right to get his deposit back, but he, he let it go. And I said to him, I, I, I don't understand this. He said, it was no fault of the seller. It was my fault for not getting the co-op board, even though it's his board to agree. And he walked away. We had a situation uh, with American Express. Now, American Express charges a higher percentage uh, when you purchase with an American Express card versus Master Visa. Master Visa are known for charging less, and that's why you go to places they don't accept American Express. Uh, the Met was receiving from American Express um, a donation. Uh, I don't recall the exact number, but their marketing head decided that there isn't any reason to continue this donation to the Metropolitan Opera. I mean, we don't do it for the other constituents at Lincoln Center. Um, and they then, in addition to that said, and we're gonna increase the rate that we charge you for charges on our card. Um, so I said, well, I bet I should really meet with this person in charge of marketing. And I said to them, this is not acceptable. And he looked at me, this is not acceptable. We are American Express. I said, okay, and we are the Metropolitan Opera. Uh, so the next day, or two days later, you pick up the New York Times, and we're used to feature American Express, we accept it. Now it said, we accept Master and Visa, and I left American Express name out. So they were quite upset about that. Um, and he called me back, we had another meeting, and he said, well, what about if we reinstate the donation that we were giving you. I said, no, 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 that, that will never do. So he then really was upset, stormed out of the office, and um, refused to do anything else. So then on the, at the call center, uh, where people would answer phones and, and when people bought tickets, and our call center said, oh, no, 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 we, uh, we, uh, we accept Master and Visa. And again, no mention of American Express. Uh, at this point, uh, because Beverly Sills, who at the time was the chairman of Lincoln Center, was on the American Express board, she called me and I said, Beverly, I'm sorry, but uh, uh, they are charging an increase to char the rate, I like four and a half percent on the dollar, four and a half cents on the dollar, where Visa and Master were maybe 2.7 or something. And I said, so we're not going to hand that money over to American Express. Well, Joe, I think you know his long relation. I said, Beverly, please trust me, this, uh, I'm protecting the Mets' interests. At which point, um, Harvey Golub, who was the president of American Express, or chairman, called Jim Kinnear, the chairman of the Met board, who called Bruce Crawford. And Crawford called me and said, Joe, I understand you uh, 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 having some difficulty with American Express. I said, well, not really. I mean, the point is that they, uh, they don't want to make their contribution. They want to charge higher rates. Well, that's not the way Harvey Golub. Harvey Golub told Jim Kinnear, you were holding a gun to his head. Oh, I said, because I said we will not accept American Express card at all. Um, he said, well, look, they're prepared to give you, uh, go back to the old rate, 
and give you $20,000 donation. I said, that won't work, Bruce. Uh, well, they said they have the other constituents to worry about. Now, the, I researched, and New York Philharmonic, New York City Opera, City Ballet, their charges that American Express amounted to, for each organization, three to four million, and the Met charges were 20 million. So I said, any, it's very simple. They donate $100,000, they reduce the rate to the same as Master Visa, and we will then say, put American Express back in the ad, uh, and Crawford said, I'll get back to you. And he got back to me, he said, Joe, I'd like to come see you. I said, sure, sure. So Bruce came. He said, let me give you, a, a, let me tell you what I would do. You do what you want, but I, because he would never insist that I do something. Let me tell you what I would do. I would insist on the rate being the 2.8 or whatever you said. I said, but I would accept 50,000 the first year and insist on 100,000 the next. So that's what I did. So that was the relationship. That, and, and that's the way Crawford always worked with people. As I, as I recall, Opera America meeting in, during that time, uh, we had a big discussion about all opera companies should follow Joe's example and not let the American Express charge, charge the higher rates. That was a, a big topic one year, around 1990 or so, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it was about that. Anyway, uh, you mentioned Beverly Sills. I think Beverly Sills is the next person on my list to talk about. She, known to all of you, I'm sure, but eventually became the chairman of your board. Now, this was a lady who had quite a different approach to doing things, according to yourself and others. T tell us about Beverly and tell us what challenges were dealing with her um, as a competitor previously across the plaza, as a diva, as a, a wealthy woman in her own right or through her husband. Um, and um, it, there must be some challenges there. Well, Beverly, of course, was a great diva. She was an icon in the opera business, or, I mean, or even out of the opera business, outside of the business. Uh, and she ran City Opera. She gave her heart and soul for that company, kept it af afloat. No doubt she's rolling over in her grave today, given what's happened with New York City Opera and the lack of leadership there, or good leadership. Um, but Beverly, wanted to run things. And when she was at Lincoln Center, and she was the chairman of Lincoln Center, and Nat Leventhal was the president, she and Nat had a lot of difficulties. Nat was, uh, worked with Ed Koch, actually. He was a deputy mayor, uh, politically savvy, but never dealt with a diva. And <laughs> Beverly wanted it her way. Uh, and it got to a point where um, there was a lot of tension and we, the Lincoln Center and the constituents were starting the Lincoln Center Redevelopment Program. I don't know if you're aware of that. They were going to re redo all the buildings. There was talk of putting a dome over the over Lincoln Center similar to what is it, the, 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 the library in London. And, um, I was in shock. I said, a dome, and actually it was Frank Gehry who they hired because they needed a star architect because they wanted, they had to raise a lot of money. And so Frank came up with the idea of the dome and just think how wonderful it would be. You know, you could have musicians floating around and you could have vendors. I, and uh, it was gonna be like Yankee Stadium, I was afraid. 
Uh, and also, Lincoln Center is the one area of New York you can see the sky. So I objected to it. Now, I was in a very delicate position because I was the hired help. I wasn't a board member. And, but I took a very aggressive position uh, against the dome. And Beverly came to me and said, you know, Joe, um, I have to fly out to California to see Frank, and the fellow that was in charge of the renovation was uh, Marshall Rose, who was a builder. He built not only supermarkets, he built cities. He told me he built entire cities. Uh, and I asked him if he also built people and put his people in there. Uh, at any rate, I said to Beverly, well, that, this is another Marshall Rose Mall, and I'm against it. She said, well, I'm against it too, but I don't know that I have the courage to tell that to Frank. I said, well, just go out and, and you know, look at it and just in your own way give your opinion, which he did. Um, so Beverly and I had a very good relationship at that point. Uh, she was then uh, tired of Lincoln Center and decided, oh, well, let me go to the Met now. I always wanted to be at the Met. My mother told me, unless you're at the Met, you haven't made it. And of course, Rudolph Bing, the general manager, never hired her. He had, he had Joan Sutherland. He had um, uh, other great singers. And Beverly was not on uh, in his, his line of vision. So Beverly made her debut after Bing came. But she said, I want to be at the Met. And she met with... Crawford had already left, met with the new president and myself, and said, I want to be chairman. Now, knowing Beverly's a great fundraiser, I thought it was a terrific idea. Um, and she became chairman. But after about six months of fundraising, she came to see me. She said, Joe, I have to do more. I said, uh, do more? Like what? Well, I should really help you. <laughs> oh, how do you wish to do that? Uh, well. I could help you with casting, and I have a lot of ideas. And I said, Beverly, that's not going to work. She said, you won't accept my help? I said, you can suggest anything. Uh, however, I want you to understand you have, there's, it's, this is not your responsibility. Your responsibility is the board and fundraising. The, the, the temperature between Beverly and myself cooled off quite a bit at that point. <laughs> However, I still adored her, I mean, because she was an incredible fundraiser. And then Beverly, unfortunately, became very ill uh, and, and eventually died. And, but but she, made, she made a great contribution. She, put, she brought in some very, very generous people to the Met. Uh, and no matter what one says about her, Beverly was a star, and she was a, quite a wonderful person. Uh, it's just that we had our slight difficulties at times. There's some great stories about Beverly doing fundraising and her lunch schedule and her dieting issues. And uh, I'm glad to know she continued. But I thought we might be at this stage, we could talk a little bit about fundraising, a subject I know a little bit about over the years. I once met a lady called Louise Humphreys with Marilyn Shapiro, who was the head fundraiser of the Met for many years. And I remember a conversation about the, the cocktail parties that, that Louise used to have at her flat across from Lincoln Center and that this was the, the factory through which anybody who would accept an invitation was effectively open season for fundraising for the rest of your life. There's a wonderful quote, though, in the book, your book, that says, how can we take him to a fundraiser? Him referring to Joe, of course. 
And, and what were your relationships with the, with, the, with the fundraising side of the machine and with Mrs. Humphreys, who became your president, obviously Beverly doing her bits? Who said that about him in the book? You, it's, so your, it's your quote. It came from, must have come from... Oh, uh, oh I said that, that, that was, no, that was before I was given the job of general director. Before I was given the job of general director, we might also get into this because you didn't read my book and I'm very disturbed about that. Go out and get a copy. Uh, however, uh, and I can get the royalties at least. Uh, you want to show them the book while I'm here? I just did. Oh, just okay. did, yes. We'll send you the link. Um, at, at any rate, when the question came up by the board as hiring, it, it boiled down to two people after Bruce decided to leave. You Southern, I mentioned, who, by the way, I think went to Oxford or Cambridge, didn't he? Never heard of him since. British accent, lovely fellow. Didn't know a thing, couldn't even find the stage door. But the board felt this is the kind of person we want to deal with patrons, gentlemen. Forget that he was a drunk, excuse me. Uh, and I think it's in the book, so it's okay that I say that. And he can sue me if he wishes, but I don't think he's alive. Uh, his estate. At any rate, uh, it, and that was the question when the search committee was deciding only because the search committee had notes. I then became the general director. I, left the, I never left one stone unturned. So I checked all board notes to see what was going on. At any rate, they said, how could we bring him to fund you know, fundraising? Um, and that was one of, the, one, one of the things they said about me. However, it never was a problem. Louise Humphrey, you knew her as Lulu. Lulu, 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 yes. Humphrey, Lulu Humphrey's dad was Jay Livingston, Ireland, a rough and tough minor shipping guy from Cleveland. He ran the town and his wife liked opera. And his, his girls liked opera. So Jay Livingston Island bought the Met and bankrolled the Met originally to go to Cleveland on tour. And he'd throw a party for 600 people opening night. And they're all in black tie and there was the mayor and senators. And there's, all, there, there's Mr. Ireland in his green sport jacket and he used to have a megaphone. He'd either listen or he'd speak. Um, anyway, he, uh, so he was a rough and tough guy. Louise did not go to college. He went to finishing school because that's what you did in those days. And she was quite a wonderful and dedicated woman to the Met. Uh, and I think that, yes, it is true. She had a job when she took over as president to raise money, and she bought a flat across the street and had it decorated and have her dinner parties, and you could look at Lincoln Center. And, but her job was to raise money. There was nothing wrong with that. She um, uh, eventually stepped down uh, and recently died, I think only about a month or so ago. I mean, it must be close to 100 years old. But she would entertain uh, Any time she was in the city, she would, she would have a box, she would entertain guests, she would have dinner before, drinks later, and if you wish to go party after the drinks later in the street, Louise would do that also. I mean, she was, uh, uh, I would say, well-rounded as far as dealing with, with, um, with donors. And the interesting thing about it, yes, she came from a, from a background with a lot of money, but she didn't put on airs. 
Louise Humphrey was Louise. She was Lulu, really. She's a great uh, lady. She, she was a great lady, great fun to be with. And she, and she took no prisoners, I don't think, either, from what I could tell. Uh, talk to us about your own involvement with some donors. In particular, I think Sybil Harrington was one of the great donors of your era at the Met, now dead also. But she, she gave tens of millions, if I remember correctly. Uh, and she was a formidable lady in her own right. H how did you deal with Sybil Harrington and her, her ideas and her demands and the fact that here's some money, you do what I want you to do with it? Say, Bill, did, did, I, uh, did I write about anything in the book about Sybil? I must have. I didn't look, look for Sybil. I don't believe you. I think you, oh, I think you have information. I must have said something there. Sybil Harrington um, <clears throat> was a, a gal that was a dancer from Texas, and when she saw this very fancy automobile going down the street, she said, I'm going to marry that guy. <laughs> and her husband was an oil man. Uh, and made millions and millions of dollars. She was very young. She gave up dancing. Uh, but when she married him, of course, then she could afford many jewels and things. But she loved the opera. And Sybil gave a lot of money to the Met. Actually, the auditorium at the Met was named uh, Sybil Harrington Auditorium for a mere 20 million. I mean, that was a bargain, I think, in those days. Um, but Sybil had a lot to say. The, we were doing a new production of Tosca. I was the assistant manager. And the director was Piero Fagioni. You remember Piero Fagioni? Brilliant guy, crazy, but uh, I mean, I, I thought he, he's a great director, but very difficult to deal with because he wanted to direct, design, do the costume, do lighting and everything. And, but anyway, we said, we'll take a chance. But Sybil said to Tony, if Piero Fagioni uh, does the production, I will withdraw my funding. And Tony said to me, Joe, I, I can't go ahead with this. And I was a little shocked by it. And Sybil said, I want Franco Zeffirelli to do it. Um, and Franco Zeffirelli did do the production of Tosca, and it's the grand production that Franco did. Now, during my time, then, Sybil, I didn't deal with Sybil one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, we, we had good times together. She paid for a production of Fanchula, and I took her down to Little Italy with the production team, and she always would have a good time. But when it came to asking for money or productions, I preferred Bruce Crawford do that. I said, because that's why you're here, Bruce because I'm not going to get into a big dispute, because if Sybil was to say, uh, I want X to do this production, I would not agree. I would not do what Tony Bliss did, because that, it, that does not work. That couldn't work as far as I was concerned. Um, Sybil died. There was a, uh, left the foundation, and we did have a, um, quite a, a disturbance because some of the members of the foundation thought that uh, the money, we were using Sybil's money for productions that she would not be happy with. And they got lawyers from Texas and, and it, we, we worked it all out. But Sybil was uh, a very elegant uh, lady, but she was tough as nails. And um, quite frankly, 
Uh, I mean, I think we got on well, uh, but it, I, I avoided having the one-on-one -on -one with her. Now, we also had a, a, a woman, another oil family, Cynthia Wood, who loved music, loved the opera, and would never interfere. Uh, she would come to me and say, Joe, what production am I going to do this year? You better decide right away because I don't want to miss out. <laughs> now, that's the kind of patron you want to have. <laughs> Uh, and, and Cynthia, she, she was Cynthia San did. As well, yes. She was San Francisco, yes. and she did, she did quite a few productions after yeah, that. She did. Yeah, she's a good lady. Uh, what about other donors? What about the whole issue of donor influence? Obviously, Sybil Herring was a particularly powerful factor because her, her checks were so large. But what about other uh, other donors? And how did you deal with with rich ladies and rich tycoons coming and saying, you know, I, I heard this person in London, or I met this person in Paris. Why don't Why aren't they singing here? How much of that did you get? Not very much. Uh, what, what I, I, first of all, I was given advice. I don't know if um, uh, you know of the American mezzo, uh, Risa Stevens. And her husband, Walter Sorovi, when I got the job, came in and gave me advice. Um, he said, Joe, he said, I'm going to tell you one thing. When you leave the Met, People will only remember when you have said no and never remember the many times you've said yes. So act accordingly now. And I did. So after a year or two, I think I created, um, I, I created a relationship with people that they were a little wary of me. You know, so I didn't have many donors. Oh yes, I'd have a friend of mine, Bill Rolnick, says, I'll give you $750,000 if you do Nabucco. You know Rolnick, he gave money in San Francisco. And we wanted to do Nabucco. Uh, I said, okay, but we're gonna do it four years from now. We'll take the money now, put it in the bank and hold it for you, you know, so you don't spend it. But I had a great relationship with him. Uh, but most of the, the major donors and board members, I had a, a very good relationship with. The, there were other donors that really liked what was happening at the Met while I was there, and so it was a very good relationship. And <clears throat> the, uh, um, I mean, Mercedes Bass is the perfect example. I pushed Mercedes to get more involved in the Met. Um, and I said, and she loved the opera. Uh, we, I had lunch with her, with Paul Montrone, who was the president, and I suggested to Paul and that, he, that Mercedes should be on the executive committee, which in fact he agreed to and she joined. Uh, and of course the December, the Christmas of 2005 is when Mercedes gave $25 million to the Met. Now, giving 25 million or 30 million, uh, many times it's over five years. But Mercedes, I had a check in my hand, $25 million. I just called her and I said, I couldn't believe it. I said, but you made it out to the wrong person. You have Met Opera. That was supposed to be Joe Volpe. Uh, however, she said, no, no, it's for the Met, Joe. <laughs> uh, and I called her the next day to make sure that I wasn't dreaming. And uh, Mercedes became very influential in the Met. And in fact, uh, to this day, is raising money for the Met. So, and, and we still have a very good relationship. So it, most, most big donors uh, are 
are reasonable and understanding people, you do get in this world those whacks, but you know, that happens all over. How much of your time did you spend on fundraising? As little as possible. No, I mean, the, uh, uh, I think um, in the beginning, there would always be patron dinners and things like that, which I would do. But once I developed a relationship with, uh, with, with the donors, uh, it didn't require that much time. Um, uh, Louise was doing the entertaining or, or others, uh, but uh, so it, wasn't, it didn't require that much time. Let's talk a little bit some of the some of the artistic partnerships you you've had, and I think we were speaking the other night a little bit about Domingo and Pavarotti in particular, who who started an opera about the time you did, and you, you, you grew up in the business together, and and one of my my friends who's watched you from afar for many years and was a trustee of Lincoln Center, he said when I called him the other week, told him I was doing this, he said well, one hallmark of Joe's time with the Met was he made the place run and the artist totally trusted him. Talk to us about, about Domingo and about Pavarotti and about how you built that relationship that, that made them such central figures in the Met and the opera business over the well, years. Well, I think it's more than, you know, although Placido and, uh, and Luciano were big stars, the superstars, and you sold subscriptions based on their being at the Met, uh, but it had to do with all artists. The incident uh, regarding the soprano that I had to fire uh, there's, a whole, there's a whole chapter on her in the book, by the way. <laughs> well, what's that chapter called? It's, uh, it's called Kathy Battle. No, 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 no. It's, let me have the book, please. It's not Kathy Battle. No, no, I, I was more creative than oh, that. Maybe. I'm sorry, Bill. Yes, I, read, I read the subtext. I, 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 I was hoping you did your homework, and uh, <laughs> the um, it was Battle Him. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> At any rate, uh, she uh, uh, just did uh, Daughter of the Regiment in San Francisco, had a very bad time, and actually the chorus was walking around with t-shirts saying, we survived the battle. Um, I sat next to Kathy at the cast party that night. Oh, did you? Yes. And uh, what I didn't realize, there were two things I didn't realize. One, she didn't have a big success in San Francisco. I didn't pay attention. Two, uh, she was getting herself into a state where she couldn't work with other singers. Uh, Frank Lopardo was the tenor, and she said to him in, in the rehearsal room, before he got to the stage, don't look at me when I'm singing, <laughs> and don't touch me. So he had to put his arms like around her, but anyway, and look up in the upstream. There was a particular scene <clears throat> where She's supposed to be getting uh, music instructions, music teacher, and the music teacher was Rosalind Elias, who was at the Met for many, many years. And Rosalind came to see me. She said, Joe, I, please, uh, I want to withdraw from this production. I said, I don't understand why. She said, Kathy is making my life miserable. I am not sleeping nights. I'm taking Valium. I cannot deal with it. And I said, Roz, be patient. Stop taking Valium. Have a double scotch. <laughs> and I will eventually deal with it. I will deal with it. Frank Lepardo, the tenant, came to see me. And he said, you better come to the rehearsal because we're getting nothing done. So I go to the rehearsal. Guess what? Kathy Battle doesn't show up. 
So I call her agent, very powerful agent, Ron Wilfred, who handled Jimmy Levine and everybody. And I said, where is she? Uh, I'll get back to you. Calls me back. She's stuck in the tunnel. I said, she lives on Central Park West. There is no tunnel. <laughs> oh, no, this was the tunnel in the transverse coming across town. She was on the east side. So I mean, she was sleeping or something. At any rate, um, I then rearranged the schedule. But what I didn't realize is we had to rearrange the schedule because when all the singers took a break in, in, in the room rehearsal, they have an hour off for lunch, they'd go down to the cafeteria and have a good time. Kathy couldn't do that. She couldn't be with her colleagues. It's some kind of an illness. I don't know what it's called. Uh, at any rate, um, it got so far out of hand, I then had to let her go. Um, and actually, I made the decision. My lovely wife said, are you sure you want to do this? I said, it's done. Uh, the next day, Jimmy Levine came to see me. Jimmy Levine was a protege of Kathy. He said, Joe, he said, I wouldn't handle it this way. I said, what would you do? He said, I'd let her finish the run and then don't hire again. I said, I can't do that. Number one, we can't even get a, rehe can't even get a rehearsal together. So Jimmy left and in comes her agent. And Ron said to me, Joe, I wouldn't do this. Uh, there's ways around this. I said, Ron, it's done. He said, well, I'm warning you. Uh, when you die, the newspaper in your obit is going to say that he fired Kathy Battle. And I said, think about that. More people will come to my funeral. <laughs> Rudolph Bing died. And the first thing it said, the second sentence in the New York Times was he fired Maria Collis. So I fully expect it will be there. Well, I hope we don't see it for a However, why I got into that whole story is because Rosalind Elias was a dedicated singer to the Met and needed my support. My job was to support the singers, have the best environment so they could perform the best way. So it had to do, it's, not, it's more to do than Luciano or Plaza, who, by the way, I did have a very good relationship with. Um, Placido is a little disturbed because the book, I think I call them the Siamese twins. And he came to me and he said, why do you have to put me in the same chapter as Luciano? See, he never got over the fact that if he opened the program he was performing, you'd see a picture of Luciano with a, a, a recording company put in, and it really disturbed him because he was very competitive. The millions of dollars they made as the three tenors solved that. I mean, because then I think they had a, a better relationship. Um, but supporting the singers, that was my job. Uh, Renee Fleming, we were doing a um, new production of Marriage of Figaro. She's going through a difficult divorce. She's driving home. She was living in the country. 79, she's up 79th Street. She makes a turn. Car runs right into her. She wasn't paying attention. So we, I got her back to the Met. I got a car service, and I said, you are not allowed to drive home anymore. So either you stay in the city, or I will give you a car to take you home and pick you up. Because she was just, uh, she was just beside herself going through this divorce. So that's what I did. Charles Anthony, who recently died, who holds the record for the number of performances at the Met, at the Met a tenor, Charles Anthony 
Caruso, his name was, but they dropped the Caruso off for apparent reason. Um, the uh, Charlie sang, I don't know whether it was 2,900 performances, but he had trouble seeing at night, so the assistant artistic administrator uh, saw me and said, well, Charlie, I said, get him a hotel room. I said, we will pay for it. He can drive in the daytime. So that was my job, to take care of those people, to help them. Well, taking care of, care of artists is one thing. What about taking care of Jimmy Levine? Jimmy has, is, is, is the great icon of the, of the Met Pitt, has built a brilliant orchestra for the Met over the years. Uh, he's, he's, he's viewed by everyone I know as central to, to the Met's musical establishment. What was it like working with Jimmy, and what did you have to do to, to, to keep him going? I was a technical director in 1978, and we were doing, we were televising a performance of Rigoletto. It was Luciano, I don't remember the soprano, and the Rigoletto was Cheryl Milnes, and Cheryl canceled the day before. Tony Bliss was the general manager, John Dexter was there, Jimmy Levine, and I happened to be sitting in at the meeting because I was the technical director, and they were trying to figure out did they cancel the telecast or not. And after listening to them going around in a circle for about five minutes, I said, you know, you guys are missing the boat completely. The television audience wants to hear Luciano Pavarotti. Cornell McNeil is in the house. Cornell McNeil can sh do a great job. And I said, you go ahead with it. You don't cancel the television. And so that's what they did. And Jimmy looked at me and he said, you know, that's a great idea, Joe, thanks. So we developed a relationship in 78. By the time 90 came around and I was in charge, we worked together all these years. So we understood each other. Uh, Jimmy, would, ne was not, would, would never have a confrontation. Jimmy and I had one disagreement. Well, we had, we had many differences of opinion, but we always agreed. We only had one disagreement in the time that we worked together, and that was Kathy Battle. But Jimmy, uh, Jimmy, great musician, um, but sometimes, like many conductors, uh, their Bible is the score. Uh, many conductors, I probably shouldn't say this, but think that they should be in charge, you know, so when it comes to stage direction and things, uh, I mean, Jimmy would be very happy if we did not have a director. Uh, I don't know, David, have you ever worked with Jimmy? He'd love the singers to be right down on the apron. <laughs> that's what conductors do. So. I mean, that's, that, that's the nature of the beast. But Jimmy was a reasonable uh, fellow, and uh, we got on quite well. Was, was Jimmy well organized? I mean, I, I don't know a lot about his work, but one of the problems I've seen from time to time in my life in opera is some, some singers, some conductors don't observe schedules very closely. I mean, he must, he must have had to be pretty well organized to, Jimmy to do what he Jimmy was did. like a clock. There are others that are disorganized. Yeah. I mean, when you go to see uh, a conductor in, in uh, conducting in New York Philharmonic, can't find his baton, he uses a chopstick. Uh, you know, there's, uh, he could be, he's a little forgetful. That was a dear friend of mine also, Valery Gergiev. <laughs> <laughs>
Yes, I had a conversation with Larry once where he just finished a, a rehearsal at, at the Royal Opera House in the morning and he took a flight to New York to conduct, I think, part of the ring in the evening. That was a kind of frenetic schedule. Yeah, but Larry uh, had a tendency of coming in the last minute, but he, after the first, first performance at the Met, he was never late. Because I said, if need be, I will come get you. I will, and I will bring you into the theater. And he thought I was out of my mind, you know, but, but so he always made it. The, ne the next thing I'd like to talk a little bit about is, is about the, the Met's relationship with the city, and, and particularly yours with Rudolf Giuliani, well known to most of the world as a result of 9-11. But, but he ran New York in a, with, a, with a tough uh, regime, in the bit the way your reputation was a tough regime with the Met. Talk, talk about your friendship with, with, with Giuliani and what that meant to the Met in particular. Well, I'm a big fan of Rudy as a mayor. I, would, I did not think Rudy would make a good president, quite frankly. Um, brilliant guy. Uh, in, in, as the mayor of New York, he did wonderful things. He, was, he ran the city as, well, a benevolent dictator. That's what I think it, it needed at the time. Um, Rudy loved opera, so we would see a lot of each other. Um, Rudy always wanted to run the Met. Actually, when he, when he retired from being the mayor of New York in, a, in, a inter, in an interview, uh, they asked him you know, what he'd like to do. He says, there's only two jobs I want. I said, I want to be the manager of the New York Yankees. He said, but I can't do that because my friend Joe Torrey has the job. He's doing a great job. And I want to be the manager of the Met, but I can't do that because my friend Joe Volpe has the job. So he said, I'm going to have to do something else. And that's when he opened up his consulting business. But Rudy was a big supporter of the Met. And at any time we needed help from the city, he was always there. Not him particularly. He had a staff. He had incredible deputy mayors. Very responsive. And they were responsive to everybody. Uh, but, I mean, I, I have not seen Rudy now recently. I after. Uh, I want to go ahead. After I left the Met, I, I retired from the Met. My last day was July 31, 2006. And August 1, 2006, I went to work with Rudy at Giuliani Partners. It was a consulting firm. They had a uh, security business, and actually the fellow who, the FBI fellow that was in charge of the 9-11 investigation, Pat DeMauro, became the head of his security. Uh, he had some of his bureaucratic friends from City Hall. Um, the fire commissioner was there. Um, and uh, what we're going to try to do is develop uh, consulting in the arts, but it didn't work out. It didn't work out. I was there 18 months. The, the, the atmosphere at Giuliani Partners was all of the partners, if, if Rudy was in the office, would kind of wait outside to get a pat on the head and attaboy. And, and the fire commissioner uh, said to me, Rudy's here, aren't you gonna go see him? I said, what for him? I'm gonna talk to him about it. Well, but no, everybody goes to see him. I said, well, I don't, you know. I mean, if I have something to talk to him about, I will. Um, but it was a very bureaucratic operation. It was not for me, and I left uh, after 18 months. But I uh, had a great relationship with him. After 9-11, we, that was the first time the Met have a, had a simulcast in the plaza. 
Uh, it was a simulcast. We, we had a special performance for the victims of 9-11. We raised $1.6 million <clears throat> between board, company donations, the company donated at that time, and some corporate gifts. And I had a relationship about fundraising with Deutsche Bank at the time, with Texaco. Um, and we raised $1.6 But Rudy came to the performance, and we walked out, and, and he saw the 3,000 people packing the plaza, and he said, Joe, you did a great thing. He said, you enabled the, the New Yorkers to come together again as a community, because you know what, what happened after 9-11, everybody was scattered. They were afraid to go out. What was next? And yet, they were there. And he always used that as an example of how to get people back together again. Uh, but what, what was the, the, the nature of the, of the company's relationship with the city generally? I mean, it certainly wasn't about funding, because most American institutions don't get much public funding. You probably had something, and there wasn't much in my... In my no, not at all. No, well, for example, uh, the, we were, our opening night, let us say, was September 30th. And the city decides they're going to pave Columbus Avenue. And most of the bureaucrats in the city are in a fog. So they're going to shut down Columbus Avenue for two days. One of those days is our opening night at the Met. So I couldn't get Rudy. He was busy, but I got one of the deputy mayors, who's now president of the New York Yankees, by the way. And I said, Randy. I said, you have to open up Columbus Avenue. He goes, Joe, Rudy promised the store owners it will be done by Thanksgiving. I said, it can be done by Thanksgiving. I said, however, you cannot keep it closed. And furthermore, if it's closed, I'm not going to let him come to the theater. I won't open the side door to let him in. <laughs> that was a joke, by the way. <laughs> anyway, lo and behold, the road was opened up. Rudy responded to New York City uh, uh, constituents in that way. He always did what he felt was right, and he always was there to help. When the Lincoln Center Redevelopment wanted to build a theater in Damrish Park, uh, a bunch of the board members went to see Rudy, and he said, uh, oh, uh, uh, where's Joe? Bolte. Uh, oh, no, no, this is just board members. Oh, okay. What does he think about it? Well, we don't know. I said, okay. He said, well, go find out, then let me know. And he walked out of the room because of the a relationship. Now, I know what happened with Lincoln Center. When Lincoln Center was built, they made a deal with the city to close off 63rd and 64th Street so they could have this block of space. And Lincoln Center promised the city a park. It was Damage Park. There isn't any way that Rudy was going to let them build on a park that was promised to the city. So Rudy then called me, and then we discussed it. He says, okay, here is my response to them. How do you like this one? They buy the Martin Luther King School, which we hate. They tear it down. They, replace, they first build another school. They find a lot, build another school. The, those students go to the new school. They tear it down, uh, and that will be a park, and then I'll give them Damage Park, because Martin Luther King was right behind Lincoln Center. He said, and that's what I'm going to tell them to do. I said, well, then never do it. He said, well, I'm giving them an option. <laughs> and that's what he did. Right. <laughs> Clever guy. Well, in your, in your life as a retired 
general manager of the Met. You've taken on some interesting projects, and you said yeah, that you're actually working for your successor. Would you like to talk about working back at the Met and in your and your particular role right now? Not particularly. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you want me to respond? <laughs> Um, Peter's an interesting guy. I mean, he worked for me uh, in the 80s, and I think I can quote Peter Gelb. Uh, just prior to his officially taking over, August 1, 2006, he went to an Opera America conference and was the keynote speaker. And he says, I do things differently than Joe. Um, Joe and I had a disagreement once and he threatened to throw me across the plaza. Now I'm quoting him. Uh, now that wasn't a very kind thing to say. He also said something about uh, Joe had trouble with a certain soprano and she refused to wear a wig that the designer uh, and the director felt was important for the production. It was common. She was singing uh, Michaela. Michaela in this came from the north, so it would be a blonde rather than dark hair. And the soprano, uh, we were in Japan. We're going to open the production of Carmen. And uh, we had a rehearsal, and there was no wig. She had her black hair. And I went back to the dressing room, and I said, well, she's, uh, you have to wear the wig. She said, I'm not wearing that wig. Um, I said, I want you to think about this. She said, no, I'm not wearing it. I said, okay, Angela, the wig goes on with or without you. <laughs> and in fact, it did. Uh, I know Arteta sang the role of Michaela, and Angela was in the front of the house with her husband, Roberto Alanya, complaining to everybody about what I did. Now, uh, so that, how did I get onto that tangent anyway? I forgot what the original question was. I got into the wig. <laughs> oh, Peter. So Peter said at the Opera America conference, oh, and I have a different feeling about wigs than Joe. And of course, you can say that, but this had nothing to do with the wig. It had to do with protecting the integrity of the production. And that's what I feel, felt was very important. I think today Peter feels that way, but at the time he didn't quite understand the situation. Um, so no, I went back and I'm helping them out with their labor negotiations and we've got most of the contracts uh, completed um, and I'm happy to do it. I enjoy seeing the people. I enjoy standing around watching everybody going crazy backstage and can't believe that I did that for so many years. Uh, but it, it, it's a reasonable relationship. Let, let, we have a little more time. I don't want to get uh, into the uh, into bits that we're going to do in the next segment. But let, let's talk a little bit about some some of your of your innovations at the Met. Uh, one of the things that we talked about the other night was Met titles. Uh, of course, the, the Met tour ended. There were some very big changes in your time at the Met. Uh, what do you think might be the biggest single difference you made uh, to the to the art form in, in your time, or, or the to film? to the Metropolitan Opera? Well, in our from general, yes. Well, on the financial side, when I took over, the endowment was 100 million. We raised it to 345. Forget that it's down to 200 and 
40 now. Um, so patrons were pleased and happy enough to make major contributions to create the endowment. Now, it should be a billion dollars, but at least 345 was a reasonable number. Um, I think as far as uh, innovation, although there were projected titles, uh, we developed MET titles, which were CPAC titles. Unfortunately, um, we didn't get a patent on that, so uh, there are companies out there doing CPAC titles today, and I don't know if they're making any money, but uh, I mean, I think that came out of the, the fact that many of our board members, the so-called opera experts, couldn't look at titles. They just thought, oh my God, I have to look at a title when it's going to ruin the opera for me. So it was developed that you could only see the screen in front of you. You could not see the screen on either side with certain filters. So that was something we did. We created, a, when, when we automated the box office, we went to a company and had a lot of trouble. So, uh, and we had a consultant used to work for Price Waterhouse. And I hired her and I said, Asmita, we're going to develop our own software. And we're going to develop it so that it covers not only marketing, but also uh, fundraising. And we called it Tessitura. Now, I think today, I mean, there are many, many companies all over the world that are using that. So, I mean, I think on, on the technical side, those were the achievements. Uh, I think on the artistic side, um, and I'm not going to talk about productions at this point, but we had many hits and misses, as every company does. Uh, but I think all in all, uh, it, the productions were very successful. Um, the, and, and I think as far as singers and debuts, there were a lot of singers in my time that made their debut at the Met, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm proud of that. There's, there's a quote I vaguely remember from the press, something around, I don't know, mid-80s perhaps. I think it's Jimmy Levine saying, over my dead body will we have met, will we have titles? Because they came in sometime around the mid-80s. I can't remember exactly when. No, but no. Jimmy said that towards the end of the 80s, I took over in the 90s, 1990, and at the first patron event, somebody said to me, Mr. Volpe, James Levine uh, responded about titles saying, over his uh, dead body. And how, do you, what do you, how are you going to deal with that? And I said, well, I actually prefer a more traditional funeral. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So that's how I handled that. Right. By the way, if you go into the theater and Jimmy Levine is sitting there, he has his titles on. Make no mistake. <laughs> People move on. That's good to hear. Uh, perhaps the last segment that I talked to is, is about some of, some of the productions. I, it became quite clear to me uh, the, other, the other night that, that you have some favorite productions, some favorite um, designers, and, and, and perhaps a preferred approach to producing opera. Over your many years at the Met, would you tell us a little bit about maybe the, the three or four most exciting productions you were involved with and who, and who was in them and why? Well, some of them were prior to my becoming a general director or general manager. Um, John Dexter became the director of production at the Met at some point in the early 80s, or maybe a little earlier. And John did a, a, a few productions at the Met that I thought were just sensational. 
dialogue of the Carmelites. We were doing a new production of Ariadne off Knoxus. It was planned, and we lost the funding. And John said, I have an idea. And for very little money, he came up with this production of Dialogue of the Carmelites. was a smashing production. Uh, I mean, so that's one of them. My relationship with John was quite wonderful in those days because he said, he would say to me, well, here's what I'm planning to do, and et cetera. How much is it going to cost? And I would stick my neck out and tell him. Um, but John did Mahagoni, which I thought was with, with Jocelyn Herbert, the abduction from the Seraglio he did. John also did some flops. And the flops he did were not productions that he should have been doing. He was the director of production. So when a production fell apart, uh, a new production of Aida, John decided he would take it on because the net was stuck. That was not a great production. He also did a, a Rigoletto, which was not. But for the productions that John did, Lulu was another one. I mean, there was some great, great production. Um, there are other productions in the Met during my time that I think were quite wonderful, and they're still there. Some of them, I mean, Franco's productions, Franco is Franco. That's a world of his own, you know. Um, if you're going to do a Turandot, or if the Met is at least, or uh, the Bohem, and uh, his production of Tosca, which has since been replaced. I mean, I think those were quite wonderful. But I, it was interesting about the Bohem, because his Bohem looks very large. But if you actually see in Act One uh, in the garret how close it is to the apron, it's very close to the orchestra pit. Yet, visually, it looks like it, it, it's, it's away. And yet, there's, there's a ceiling, there's a roof on it. It's great for the singers, but the critics hate it. Um, so, I mean, so Franco, in many respects, I think, did some wonderful productions. There are other productions. Uh, I was just talking to David. The one production that I love was a commission work, The Voyage. It was Philip Glass, David Poutney did it. That was one of my favorite productions, because I am I, I, longing to see that thing done somewhere. Um, so, I mean, there, there have been so many, though, that, that have been quite wonderful. Um, we're doing a Macropolis, well, the Met's doing Macropolis now, and Carita Matila is, uh, is singing it, and I very much want to, I think it's a very good production, but I really want to see Carita perform in that role. One of the things that's been said of the advanced publicity for, for this week is, is that you commissioned or produced more new opera than anybody in, in New York or in the, at the Met since the 30s. Uh, I don't know how many that is or what, what the percentage of the repertoire was, but what sort of big contribution do you think you made in terms of new works? Well, if you go back in history of the Met, Gadi Kazaza, who was the general manager from 1908 to 1935, produced more new commission works than anyone. And the reason was, in those days, uh, the composers would come in and give him the production and say, would you consider performing this? Today, it's much more complicated than that. But during my 16 years as general manager, I believe we did 21 works that were never done. They were premieres at the Met, mostly um, 20th century works. And we did four commissions. Uh, so compared to Rudolf Bing, who was there 22 years, Bing did two commissions. 
and about 11 new works. So we, I expanded the repertoire greatly, and I'm very proud of that. And, and which of those repertoires linger on as, as repeatable operas? Well, uh, you mean the... Uh, or have they joined the repertoires? That's a better way of saying it. No, but uh, which ones are you talking about? Are you talking about the 21 works that, I mean... The new works. Well, you, are you talking about the Macropolis case or productions such as that, or the four commissioned works? I did four. It was Voyage, The Voyage, um, hello, uh, <laughs> uh, Tobias Picker piece, which was American Tragedy, uh, Ghosts of Versailles, and um, what was the last one? Bridge. Bridge. Oh, uh, what was it? <laughs> I don't remember. Uh, there's a senior moment if I've ever seen one. <laughs> Most recent one. But uh, no, it's, it's wonderful. I mean, quite frankly, I think I said yesterday, in a house such as the Met, where it's so reliant on the patrons, the box office, and the fundraising, it's very difficult to do commission work. Uh, wouldn't it be fun to be in a smaller house where you had an opportunity to, to do it because it wouldn't be so expensive? Or uh, be in a country where you receive more subsidy from, from the government? Which, which is what happens on this side still. Uh, uh, well, I'd like to suggest we have a few minutes left. Maybe there are some questions from the floor for Joe on some of his achievements and what he's done. I see hands bring up quickly over there. Yes, sir. Tell us who you are and which, any question. And what directors these days do productions of operas which actually uh, depart from what the composer originally intended? And I'm thinking, for example, of Rizalka at the Royal Opera House just recently, which was set in a brothel, a lot of people booed, a lot of people walked out. Do you think the general director or the management should have some sort of right of veto over a director um, if they're really doing something outlandish that you think the public won't like? Yes. <laughs> and how many times did you exercise it? Um, let me think. The reason that Zeffirelli did two productions in a row of Traviata was because I was stuck. We had a, uh, a production team where, and by the way, it's the same thing happened with, with Carmen, uh, a production team where um, the director had a vision of Carmen. Uh, the problem was I had difficulty looking at, at the mountains from a subway car because I couldn't find them. I was in a tunnel. And I couldn't quite understand how that would work with the piece. And so we did not go ahead with the production. We paid the, paid the team off and went with another production. So, no, the, the general director does, has the ability to do that. Um, but mostly, I mean, what happens is we did a production of uh, Lady Macbeth of Nincensk with uh, Graham Vick. Uh, and Graham had a thought about how to do it. It was a monstrous production. And we went through three designs, actually. And finally, I said, Graham, 
this is the kind of piece I think you could do. Think about it the way maybe John Dexter would, and I, I hesitate to say that. And Graham came up with a solution. The production is still running today. It was sensational. Uh, sometimes one needs to jaw the creative forces a bit, uh, and, but I think the general director does have that right. I then was criticized because what does Volpe do? Uh, and he goes back to um, Franco Zeffirelli to do Carmen Traviata, only because I was stuck also. And it just didn't seem right to me. Uh, maybe it was because my wife came from Iowa that in Act Two of Traviata, the country home was in a cornfield and there was no house, it was a tent. It just didn't work for me. It was just one of those things. However, what I will say, if you look at the productions of Wiel and Wagner uh, in the 50s and 60s, when he did a Lohengrin at the Meadow, what he was doing in Byron, I believe that you can still uh, come up with innovative productions uh, that will work for the opera. It all depends also on your audience. I mean, if in New York City where the audience is conservative, and it is, and we rely on people in the seats to pay the bills, it's very difficult. You cannot be too adventurous because you have a responsibility to keep the doors open. So, I mean, there's always a balance. But, I mean, I think it would be great fun to have the ability to work in a very small company and create something and I'm not suggesting against the intentions of the composer. I wouldn't change the libretto, for example. I mean, I could picture Turandot. Uh, now, Zeffirelli has a Turandot, but picture it. Do you ever see the movie The Godfather? Well, in, there's a scene in The Godfather, just think about this, um, where his wife comes up. I was going to bring a slide. Uh, 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 it's on YouTube. And his wife is singing at the wedding party. So that she could be turned up. And instead of riddles, there would be options. Uh, if you, if you uh, marry my daughter, you're a dead man. If you do this, you're a dead man. Give them three options, they're all meaning death, you know? Uh, and so you couldn't solve the riddle because he was going to die anyway. I mean, I mean, think about that. I mean, you know, everybody loves the Godfather. Would that work for you? No. <laughs> I don't think it would work for me either. <laughs> Anybody else have a question? Well, I think what we should do is take a break. We have a, um, we have a new segment starting in 40 minutes. There's tea coming shortly. Joe, thank you so much. It's been, it's been very uh, interesting to hear your, your points on, uh, on, on your many years at the Met. And I think after the break, we're going to talk a little bit more about the future and what thank the future you. might have. Thank so, you all very much. That was a great Gatsby by John Harbison. That was the other piece. <laughs>